Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert, and I want to welcome you to my new podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, Good News for the Imperfect. It's where I'm going to try and combine two things that are important to me. First, the gospel, the stories about Jesus of Nazareth, his life and teachings that are recorded for us in the books of the New Testament and the Christian Bible. That's the basis for who I am and everything my life is about. So I love to share what I've learned with others. And second, wabi-sabi, which is a Japanese expression. Wabi-sabi is a way of finding beauty in imperfection. It's an awareness of the intrinsic value that things might have that others may not see. Think of the irregular shape and the rocks and the moss that covers an old stone wall. Or the beauty of an old raggedy Bible that you've used for many years versus a new one right out of the box. Beat up and worn out, but beautiful to you because of the ways you've used it over the years. That's wabi-sabi, which I think perfectly describes how Jesus related to people. He treated people with wabi-sabi. He saw their value, people who were broken, who had rough edges, who were beat up by life, who were lost, who were seeking, who were anxious or afraid. They found a deep grace in Jesus. There was something transforming about just being with him. His presence helped them see their value in God's eyes. And so this podcast is pretty much a straightforward Bible study, but with a wabi-sabi twist. Good news for the imperfect. So this is season one, episode one. And what we're going to do is just start with one of the Gospels and work our way through to the end in small chunks for as long as it takes. I think it's really important to read whole books of the New Testament and not just individual verses. Originally, that's the way they were written, to be read aloud. Uh, Christ's followers read the Gospels and the Apostles' letters. They read them out loud in their meetings, read the whole thing, copied them by hand, and then sent them down the road to the church in the next town. They were written to be a literary whole, not just tweets. So it's much richer if you can see how the whole book fits together. And remember, if you're new to reading or studying the Bible, the Bible is more like a library than a novel or a textbook. You don't have to start with page one and read it straight through. I mean, the people who try to read the Bible like that, usually they start Genesis 1-1 and then they give up halfway through the book of Leviticus. All those genealogies and laws and rituals, it's just too thick. That's not the way to read the Bible. The Bible is a library. It's got prose and poetry, prophecy, history, legal codes, religious rituals, biography, personal letters, lots of different types of literature, and many different contributing writers. And so you've got to know what you're reading so you know how best to understand it. Now, over the last four decades, I've invested a lot of time in one of the biographies about Jesus called the Gospel of John, and for good reason. This gospel, this good news about Jesus, well, it was written by his youngest disciple, and it stands alone as both a literary and spiritual masterpiece. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are often grouped together and are called synoptic Gospels, which simply means they see together. The synoptic Gospels use a lot of the same material, and they look at Jesus' life basically through the same lens. John's Gospel is autopic, means it looks alone. It looks at Jesus uniquely and contains a lot of information that wasn't included in the other three Gospels. Now, none of the Gospels were intended to be, you know, the complete biography of Jesus. In fact, John concludes his life of Jesus with these pretty tantalizing words. And if you have a Bible or have a Bible app on your phone, look at the Gospel of John, chapter 21, 
verse 25. This is what it says. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So John tells us there's lots more that Jesus did and said that never got written down. The gospel writers intentionally chose the stories they wanted to tell. They ordered them. They shaped them. They edited them. I believe guided and inspired by the Holy Spirit. But they did that into a style of spiritual literature that had never existed before. No one had ever written biographies like this before the gospel writers did. So that in itself intrigues me from just a historical point of view. John's gospel was written later than the others, sometime around 90 AD. It was the last gospel. John had the opportunity to read the earlier gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then fill in some of the gaps with things that they didn't talk about. He brings in a lot of other material based on his personal experiences as a disciple of Jesus, who was a firsthand eyewitness to it all. John doesn't write a chronological telling of the story of Jesus. He actually moves events around to fit his thematic purpose. If you want an accurate chronological timetable of Jesus's life, you should read the Gospel of, Ma of, of Luke. I'm sorry. If you want the facts, you know, just kind of bing, bang, boom, then go through the Gospel of Mark. If you're looking for the teaching ministry of Jesus, then Matthew is your best guide. What John gives is a theological telling of the story of Jesus. He uses no parables, doesn't tell any of the usual stories of Jesus. There are no ethical or kingdom teaching sections like the Sermon on the Mount that are so familiar to people. Instead, John's gospel is built around seven miracles or seven signs, five of which are not recorded anywhere else in the Bible. So John's great emphasis is on the person of Jesus and the way that Jesus related to people. John gives us the opportunity to look into Jesus's most innermost feelings. And that is often what endears this gospel to so many folks. John gives us a look into Jesus's own interior life. Well, who was John, the author? We're told in the gospels that he is the son of Zebedee and he had a nickname, the son of thunder. The kind of guy who loses his temper in a heartbeat. He's got a short fuse, maybe a little bit cocky. His emotions go from zero to 60 in a flash. But we also discover that this was a young man who walked closely with Jesus and was part of his inner circle. John is called the beloved disciple or the one whom Jesus loved. That's actually how he referred to himself. What a change from a loudmouth hothead to somebody who could honestly say, I am loved by Jesus. That's an even better nickname. The bond was so tight between Jesus and John that when Jesus, was, when Jesus was dying on the cross, he entrusted his mother, Mary, into John's care. That's John 19, verse 26. Let me read it. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, meaning John, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. John and Jesus were tight, and so he was in the perfect position to give us Jesus' life in great detail. For example, in the story of a wedding in Cana that we'll look at in chapter 2, John knows how many water pots there are, how many gallons of water uh, each pot held. Details that are, you know, they're not crucial to the telling of the story, but they give John's writing more vivid shape and context. We'll see a lot of that kind of detail throughout the book. 
This John also wrote all the epistles that bear his name that are towards the back of the New Testament. And he wrote the book of Revelation, that final book of the Bible that at first glance seems like a crazy apocalyptic nightmare. Maybe we'll have a chance to tackle uh, Revelation in a future session of uh, Gospel Wabi Sabi. That would be a great study. But for John, his focus over and over again in all of his writings is on the person of Christ. As if to say, what really matters is your personal relationship with Jesus. John's gospel has the most familiar verse in the Bible, John 3.16. Memorized by millions, seen on posters at sporting events and protest marches. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the essence of the gospel, the heartbeat of the gospel, on which all eternity rests. And we'll talk about that verse more when we get to chapter 3. John also gives us one significant word that is used 98 times in his gospel. It's the word believe. John must have had something in mind when he intentionally used the same word over and over again. It makes us think there is something very important about believing in Jesus. If you look at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, near the end of the gospel, here's what he wrote. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The whole purpose of his writing is for you, for me, for people down through the last 2,000 years to believe. John is not a neutral historian. He has a purpose behind his writing. He's got skin in the game. He wants people to open their hearts to Jesus, to know Jesus in his fullness and his power and his love, to know Jesus like he knew Jesus. Okay, well, that's a brief intro to the Gospel of John. And before we get into the first few verses of the Gospel, let me just encourage you to like and follow Gospel Wabi Sabi on whatever podcast platform you're using so you don't miss any future episodes. And please spread the word in all your circles of influence through all your social media. If you have any feedback you'd like to give, please contact me. Here's my email address. It's jebert1 at icloud.com. jebert1 at icloud.com. Okay, on to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Let me encourage you to open your Bible, your Bible app to the passage, so that you can follow along more closely. And I'm going to read the first three verses of John's Gospel in the New International Version. So it's John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The Bible is founded on the most basic belief that there is something out there, a something that at least got it all started. But what? In that way, I think John represents all of humanity because I believe that all people are inherently spiritual beings. Instinctively, we know there has to be something more to the universe than just the physical world we see around us. I once read an article about Eric Carlson, who was a senior astronomer at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. He had a cartoon on his office wall. The first panel showed a caveman dressed in animal skins looking up in amazement at the canopy of stars over his head. And in the balloon of his thoughts, we read this simple message. It says, where does it all come from? 
Then in the next panel, we see a modern astronomer dressed in a lab coat, surrounded by walls of computers and high-tech equipment, staring with wonder and awe into the eyepiece of his huge telescope. And his thought bubble reads, where does it all come from? You see, the questions we face are exactly the same as those of our most ancient ancestors. We may have progressed technologically, but when it comes to the big issues of life, we all still struggle for answers. Where does it all come from? Where do I fit into the mystery of this creation? And to address those essential questions of life, John takes his readers all the way back to the very first words of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. Here's the very first sentence of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, there's a something. After one verse, what do we know about this something? This something is creative. It conceives. It brings into existence. It generates. It brings matter and energy together into form and substance. It wills. It has intention. It has power. We can actually learn a great deal about the something from this one sentence. This something creates. So it's no wonder that one of the Gospels begins the story of Jesus by echoing these great words. For John, there is a something out there, and he intentionally connects his gospel to those very first words of the Bible. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without, nothing, without him, nothing was made that has been made. It's not an exact quote of Genesis 1-1, but it's close enough so that you know John wants the reader to make a connection with the opening sentence of the Hebrew scriptures. So John is jumping right into the deep end of the pool here. He doesn't wade around in the shallow water of you know, the Christmas story and shepherds and angels and wise men. He jumps in with both feet with something cosmic, the something that got it all started. There's probably no more important theological statement in the entire Bible than this one. In fact, if we really understood this brief passage, we would discover all we ever needed to know about God. This could be one of the most significant passages in the entire New Testament on God's interaction with his created world, God's involvement with humanity. It describes the incarnation where God himself becomes flesh and blood in Jesus. Incarnation literally means in the flesh, based on the Latin word carne, like the word carnivorous, which means meat-eating. Incarnation, God himself became meat, became flesh and blood and bone and organs in Jesus, a real live human being. And so in starting his gospel this way, John is blending the two strong traditions of his own day, the Hebrew legacy of the Old Testament, but also the philosophy of the Greek culture of his own time. You see, Jesus walked this earth during a time when Greek philosophy dominated the ancient Western world. The ancient Greeks and Romans, they loved to debate philosophy, and there, was, there were a lot of different ideas about what this something and how it all got started. In Greek philosophy, the concept of the word is logos, which first was introduced by a guy named Heraclitus, who lived in the city of Ephesus in the 6th century BC. For Heraclitus, and the philosophers who followed him, the word was a way to explain the continuity of things in the midst of all the flux. How everything fit together, even while all the parts of the universe were in motion. 
The word was an abstract, impersonal force which provided unity to the whole universe. It was like the glue that would hold together a model airplane. The logos, the word, was the overarching power that transcended the anthropomorphic qualities of the ancient Greek and Roman gods like Apollo or Ares. The word was bigger than those gods. It was an omnipresent force that pulsated throughout the universe, actually closer to what modern-day Buddhists or Hindus or Star Wars might teach. And the people who read John's gospel knew this concept and were familiar with the vocabulary and Greek history of the idea of the word. Well, on the Jewish side, there was a guy named Philo of Alexandria. He was a devout Jew who lived a generation before Jesus. And for Philo, the known world was made up of ideas, and it only continued to exist as long as it was an object of God's thought. If God stopped thinking about our world, it would just go poof and disappear like smoke. The Logos, the Word, was God's way of keeping the world going. It was God's thoughts. And so Philo, the Word, was a middle point, kind of a neutral place between a transcendent God and the created universe. But John takes Logos a step further. He traces the word back to the creation story from the book of Genesis in the beginning. And then it goes on to say, and God said, let there be light. God spoke creation into existence. That's how the Jewish scriptures began. And John echoes back, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. For John, this logos is identical with the something that got it all started of one essence. It's not, to, not an emanation from the something. It's not a representative of the something. It's not the thoughts of the something. The Logos is the very God of all creation, but now made personal, now made visible in the flesh in Jesus. A few sentences later, John says, Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus is the perfect word, the perfect expression of God. The Logos, the creator, the something, has now entered his own creation and become human in Jesus. Jesus is the very word of God, not merely mystical like Heraclitus would say, not just an impersonal force like Philo. In fact, the exact opposite, real flesh and blood, extremely personable, personal, able to be known, able to be experienced, able to be touched. John places Jesus at the beginning and at the center of all things. I mean, think about what is a word? It is something that expresses who we are, expresses our thoughts and our being. It's a way of communicating our very self. Parents will respond to a crying child because that nonverbal signal tells them the child is hurting. But to find out what happened, to find out why or where the child is hurting, mom or dad has to say, use your words. Tell me what is going on. And the child might say, I fell down. Or they might say, they won't play with me. Those are two completely different situations. If the child doesn't use words, the parent doesn't know how to respond. Are they hurting physically or emotionally? The child's words are important. Words express and give understanding. Words are so important. Think of the most important letters or emails or text messages you've ever received. Oftentimes you read them over and over again, trying to, you know, nuance every single word, especially if you're looking for those three most important words, I love you. There are words that come and just lift our hearts, and there are hurtful words that make our hearts sink. 
John tells us that Jesus is the perfect word. He is the perfect expression of God. We would not, could not know God fully apart from Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word. This is a statement a lot of people don't grasp. If you go back as far in time as you can go to creation and beyond, if you get all the way way back to that point, Jesus was already there. Jesus is the second person of the Godhead already pre-existed. Bethlehem was not his beginning. Christmas was not his beginning. He exists from all eternity. In fact, one of our ancient creeds says it this way, there was no time when he was not. Now just try and wrap your head around that one. There was no time when he was not. This word was with God. That does not mean that Jesus was in proximity with the Father, as some of the cults have tried to teach. Jesus, you know, just standing in the same circle with God the Father. No, the word with carries a much stronger sense than that. It means a unity, a oneness. So not just in proximity, but in essence, but an intimacy that we humans can't really understand. I mean, Jesus was divine. He was in divine, beautiful intimacy with the Father and the Spirit from the very beginning, always together as one, as this dynamic threesome. The Word was God. John finally says it as plain as day. The ancient church wrote uh, what are called the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. Those creeds were written to help flesh out what that means, the full Trinitarian God, three in one, one in three, existing from all time, a three-dimensional God, if you will. One way to try to think about this triune nature of God is to look at the physical dimensions of any room. In, in any physical space, you've got length, width, and height. And you need all three to make a room. If you take any one of those three dimensions away, all you'll have is a flat surface. You need all three dimensions. You need length, you need width, and you need height to make a room. Same with God. The fullness of God is expressed in three dimensions, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, that's not a perfect analogy, but maybe it helps get you closer. So John starts off with this grand expression of the preexistence of Jesus, and then he gets personal. All things were made through him. God the Father was the origin of all things, but Jesus as the second person of the Trinity was the vehicle or agent of creation. We tend to forget that. People tend to think that the Father did it all alone. Well, no, Jesus was active in creation, as was the Holy Spirit. Jesus was the channel. And the Apostle Paul echoes this same idea when he wrote in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 1, verses 16 and 19. He wrote this, For in him, meaning Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's a lot, too. We should remember that when we start to look at some of the miracles of Jesus, like when he turns water into wine. That's no big deal if you're the creator of the whole universe. Or straightening out a paralyzed leg. That's really not too difficult for someone who is the creator of all things. So the main thing to remember about these first three verses of the Gospel of John is that John sets the bar very high for who Jesus is. He's not just some wandering guru, not some new ethical teacher, not some who stands on level ground with all the other religious leaders and teachers of the world. 
Jesus is a thousand miles, a million miles above any other human spiritual God. He is the word. He is the logos, the very essence of the creative energy that brought everything into existence and by which it continues as the sustaining power that holds the universe together. And next time on the Gospel Wabi Sabi, we'll see that John begins to tell us why. Why the unfathomable creator God would deem to walk the dusty roads of Palestine. It has something to do with the fact that if the word created everything, it means the word created you as well. So you are going to be part of the story that John wants to tell. All right, well, thanks for being with me today. Hope you'll join me in the next episode of Gospel Wabi Sabi, Good News for the Imperfect. <laughs>